Hey there, this is Kojo K. Answer from Everything with me, K. Answer. In this episode, we've got Dr. Brianna Wright from Monash University and uh, Behaviour Works Australia. We talk about a whole lot of things, mostly just like habit forming and kind of how to, how to trick the people around you to, to also do what you want. Maybe trick's the wrong word, but have a listen. Uh, hope you enjoy. For my own knowledge gaining, um, can you just give me a bit of a lowdown of what it is that you do from a day to day and what what it is that you get to actually research and be involved in? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially, I'm a, a research fellow at Behaviour Works Australia. We're based at the Monash Sustainable Development Institute. Um, and what I do on a day to day basis uh, is very dependent on the projects that I happen to be working on at the time. So we're a very applied behaviour change centre. We spend practically all of our time kind of looking out in the real world at how we can improve programs or policies or, or influence people's lives in the real world as opposed to kind of in a lab in an artificial environment. Um, and because of that, you know, what I do depends on who I'm working with at the moment. We do quite a lot of work with governments, government departments and organisations, not-for-profits. Um, and so I predominantly work in the health space. Um, I'm really interested in, in health behaviours and how we can improve the health system overall. Um, I've done a lot of work in patient safety and that's kind of working with clinicians and hospitals around how to improve their processes and how people work within a really complex system. Um, and I last year was doing um, mm -hmm. a fair bit of work on kind of um, infertility and, and family planning and how to investigate and understand people's decisions um, to, I guess, uh, prevent involuntary childlessness. So it's it's really varied um, what I I do. Is it just so for an example? Is this is like the last thing you're talking about with the uh, infertility and stuff? Is that something you can talk about? Like what was there? Is this an ongoing thing, or is there was there a solution or something that came out of that? Uh, so we were working with an organisation called BATA. Um, they're the Victorian Authority um, for Assisted Reproductive Technology. Um, and, and essentially they are part of a group um, called the Fertility Coalition that provide educational information and materials through a website called Your Fertility. Um, and, and we were working with them to, I guess, unpack some of the ways that they could use behavioural science to increase their objectives. Um, and so they've already got like all these great materials and information that they can provide to people. But there are some challenges in actually influencing people's decisions and their behaviours. Um, and so we were kind of brought on board to unpack that from the behavioural perspective a little bit, to kind of understand when people are accessing information in their journey um, and how you can maybe start to target people a little bit earlier on um, not this is not encouraging people to have children earlier, but encouraging them to think about it so that they can plan things essentially. Mm, okay, so basically, people are jumping in to like getting research and and getting all that information too late. Is that what you're saying? And you're trying to get them to just think earlier. 
Yeah, um, essentially, you know, with with fertility, people kind of think about it as a moment in time, um, something that they will think about when they want to have a child. Um, and they don't really think of their fertility the rest of the time. And actually, most of the time, they're trying to prevent it, you know, earlier on, you it's, it's all about, um, you know, trying to not get pregnant. Um, and so there's kind of this almost a bit of a tug of war between you need people to kind of practice safe sex when they don't want to get pregnant, but you also need them to be aware that there's lots of factors that can affect your fertility. And if you do think you want to have children one day, you need to be aware of, of those influences um, and how to be, you know, in a healthy place when you do want to have kids, etc. And so it's, it's kind of this balancing act between like, definitely practice safe sex if you don't want kids. Um, but do be mindful that there's going to be things that you might need to plan if you do want to have a family. True that. Okay. I'm smiling because I am fully in this boat. Uh, my partner has given <laughs> given us or given me a bit of like a, a cut of date as she's like, by the time I'm like 30, we are having kids. And I'm like, cool. I'm now like, I'm 28 now. So I'm like, I got two years to get my shit together uh do everything i need to do like musically career wise at least the most i can and then on that date i've like got it in my calendar i'm like kids are started uh clearly i'm doing that the wrong way from this conversation that's actually not bad i mean you've got a plan you you know when uh you want things to happen that's great um, but now is actually, you know, not a bad time to kind of think about the factors that influence fertility. And, and you know, it's a lot of stuff that just affects your general health. So, you know, you just might want to kind of make sure that, you know, you're in a healthy place, you're, you're active, you're eating the right things, etc. And it's a good time to kind of make sure that, you know, <laughs> in two years at that deadline, you're in a good place. Okay, uh, let's talk eating healthy then, because now you started freaking me out. I just devoured a bowl of migraine. Was that a terrible idea? Not at all. It's all about balance, um, you know, and so it's, it's made me think of something quite interesting, which um, is, is kind of around willpower. Because when we talk about healthy eating and a lot of people are kind of influenced by influences at the moment with all this like crazy healthy lifestyle stuff on, on social media, you know, avocado that, that looks like it's flowering and, you know, everything's scattered with hemp seeds, etc. Um, and so people kind of have this idea that health is like, you know, to eat healthily, it always has to be, you know, super fresh vegetables and fruit and, you know, you can never have anything else really. When actually, you know, a healthy diet looks much more varied than that. And it's it's not really possible or good for us to try and eat you know only fresh fruits and vegetables all of the time um, and one of the reasons is because you know we have limited resources of willpower so you know we kind of have a pot of, of how well behaved we can be on certain things and that will deplete throughout the the day or the week um, and so you know if we're kind of going oh, I really want that bowl of me goring but you know, I can't, I've got to have my, my avocado and my raw carrots for lunch. 
you know, eventually we're going to get worn down because we're denying ourselves what, you know, some other fuel that our body probably needs. Um, and so then, you know, we end up binging on, you know, a packet of chips and a chocolate bar or, or something because, you know, we've, we've run out of willpower. Okay, clearly you've done a lot of research and I'm just a standard in many things. Everything you just said is literally has been the last month of my life. I was like, I'm going to start eating healthier. We had a chat um, with Dr. Ralph and I started thinking about my food I was eating. And so my first move was to go and get a bunch of fresh fruit and vegetables and start buying from like this wholesome farmer's market. And I felt like I was killing it. Uh, and then last Sunday, I didn't go. And so this week, I felt all over the place, hence the migraine. Yesterday, I had a whole bunch of chocolate. Uh, the willpower seems to have declined way quicker than I thought it would. Um, and it's there's a weird guilt thing that comes from that as well, because every time I'm doing it, I'm just like, ah. Oh, I should probably be going out and eating some like fresh vegetables. And also like the other side of that is maybe you can help me out with this as well is the buying from like a fresh grocer or fresh farmer versus like from the supermarket. There is a lot of information and misinformation about all that stuff. Um, tying back into like the infertility and just general health, it, like, you know, in general, is that something that there should be concerned about? Oh, that's a really interesting question and one I I don't know if I really have the answer to. It's probably not an area I'm, I've researched to, to the extent to answer it fully. Um, I do think, you know, one, there's kind of the supporting local angle, which is always good. Um, and I guess the other angle is kind of around um, like pesticides um, and other concerns that we have with, um, you know, the, the growing of the, the fruits and vegetables. Um, and so at local farmers markets, you might find um, more produce that's less affected by that, that can be good. Um, and the other thing, actually, I've just sort of thought of a third thing, which is, you know, um, the, the supermarkets kind of have these specifications that fruit and vegetable have to fit, you know, the apple has to look a certain way, the carrot has to not be too bent or something. Um, whereas farmers markets, you kind of get a bit more of the natural variety of what food looks like, which can also reduce food waste, which is really good. And now, now that my brain's ticking and kind of circling back to this infertility thing, because it's now weighing very, very naggingly in the back of my mind, uh, is it just a general like look after yourself, that general message of like eat well, have balance and you're good? Or is there specific things that we, aka I, should be doing uh, now in preparation for my uh, my cutoff date? Uh, that's a great question. So, um, you know, if you if you do want to do a bit of a, a health check um, to, to see if you're in a good place, the, the organisation that we were working with um, has this website called Your Fertility, which is probably really good for you to check out because um, it just goes through the main factors that do influence your fertility. So the main ones um, are things that influence your general health. So, you know, you want to make sure that you're eating right and you want to make sure you're physically active, not drinking too much, not smoking. Um, the other factor which we have 
less control over is our age. Um, you know, if you're 28, you're, you're fine for now. <laughs> You've got a, a little bit of time up your sleeve. <laughs> uh, I guess I was also curious then about, well, actually talking about age, is there, obviously the, 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 the older you get, the more chance of something potentially going wrong um, comes about. Uh, is there like a, a bracket that's like science, science, you tell me, is like this is the perfect bracket for uh, having kids and doing the whole family thing? No, no, there's no uh, perfect bracket. Um, you know, we do know that as people get older, um, one, they can have more complications when it comes to having children, um, and two, it can be harder for them to conceive. Um, and so, you know, there are some slogans around, you know, unfortunately, fertility is a little bit ageist. Um, but that doesn't, you know, there's so much variability in that. And, you know, another part of it, you know, when we were talking to people um, as part of the work that we did was, you know, understanding that, you know, fertility is, is one part of people's lives, but, you know, there's, there's other factors that influence when people choose to have children. So even if there was, you know, an ideal age, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, it's still going to be the right time. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. I am okay. I'm going home and I'm first of all doing a bunch of research. Uh, I'm also one that, to my detriment, probably doesn't go see my GP as often as I probably should. Uh, I think I think we're only on you know what fifteen minutes in, and a lot of my life decisions are already having to be altered in my mind here. Maybe. I feel good about the the balance that the migraine is not going to hurt me too much. I hope I haven't induced some kind of crisis in you by by discussing healthy behaviours. No, no, it's good. It's good. This is this is the whole point. Is that somehow by the end of this whole thing, I'm going to walk out a slightly better human being than uh than we started the conversation. <laughs> that would be a pretty good outcome. Uh, I'm now very curious of what other parts of my life that I'm fucking up right now. Um, you talked about the research that you do with like hospitals <laughs> and the infertility. Is there other things that like obviously most of us are going to have to deal with or dealing with that maybe we're unaware of? Um, basically, is there anything else that I'm not thinking about right now that I maybe should be that you get to research? Oh, what an interesting question. So there's probably a... A ton of things. I mean, you mentioned that you don't go to the GP as often as you you maybe should, and that's another area that you know we we do think about quite often. Is you know how to encourage people to seek help care when they need it, um, and not. And when I say that, I don't just mean oh something's wrong with me. I need to go see someone to figure out what's going on or to get some treatment, but also all of the preventative stuff that can keep us healthy. So you know, checking in with your GP. Um, making sure you're physically active, et cetera, or getting people to kind of engage with those proactive health behaviours. It can also include, you know, getting your vaccinations, um, doing screening for things if that's relevant for you, et cetera. 
Um, and all of those come with their own challenges yeah. and, and barriers because, you know, a lot of people engage with their health when it becomes kind of front of mind, when there's a bit of a, a prompt from their body that something's wrong and I need attention. Um, and we can take it a little bit for granted when we're feeling okay and everything's running what seems to be smoothly and we don't always take quite as good care. And I'm as guilty of this as everybody else. Um, you know, we don't take quite as good care of our bodies as we know we should. So how are you encouraging people? Because I'm definitely in that boat. I, uh, I've gone to see my doctor very few amount of times. One was when I got hit with tonsillitis for the first time and I fought it. I fought it for a couple of days on my own. I thought the lozenges and mind over matter would get me through. Turns out it wasn't enough. <laughs> um, yeah, how are you actually encouraging people to go more? Because I'm actually someone who's super stubborn about that stuff. So it depends on a couple of things. One, here is something um, called like audience segmentation is really important. So not everybody behaves the same. There are different groups. There are people who are really proactive about their health and kind of go to the doctor at the first sign, they have like yearly or bi yearly checkups. Um, and so we don't need to worry about that group too much. They're kind of already, they've taken control of their health. Then you'd probably have a group who just needs a little nudging or encouragement to go to the doctor. They have good intentions. They kind of think, I know I should go and, and do these things. I should get that vaccination um, booster or whatever it is. Oh, but I just don't have time. I'm really busy. I'll do it a little bit less. So they, they, they're well-intentioned, but there's something called the intention action gap, which means that even things that we intend to do don't always actually happen. And so with that group, it um, can be about supporting them to actually achieve their intentions. Um, and so there's a few different tools that we can use in that space, mostly trying to make things easier. Um, it can be kind of providing timely reminders, um, helping them with what we call implementation plans. So helping them actually kind of make the plan for um, when they're getting a vaccination or if they need to go get screened or, if they want to get a yearly checkup, booking those in in advance, et cetera. So that's, that group's relatively easy and some of the solutions are, you know, they're, they're small nudges would, is what we call them. And then you'd probably have this group which is, you know, they maybe don't have the best attitude towards doctors and, and healthcare. Maybe they've had some bad experiences in the past. Um, they find it unpleasant. They, you know, maybe they have a fear of needles, so they just always put off those vaccination appointments. Um, and that group is a little bit, you know, the things that we need to do to help them and encourage them and support them uh, look a little bit different. Sometimes it needs to be, um, you know, something like an awareness campaign that helps change their attitudes towards the healthcare system. Um, and this is this can be really true of kind of vulnerable groups, um, you know, called communities that, you know, maybe find it really hard to engage with the health system because there's always language barriers and they feel like the, the doctors don't understand them. They don't understand the information that they're being given. There's no um, translation 
services available. So it's a really confusing and confronting experience for them. And so sometimes you need to actually provide those services to overcome those barriers. You know, if the reason that people aren't going to the doctor is because I can't even communicate with them, then you need to find options to support people to actually communicate with their doctors. That's the solution. So you can see it's a really broad spectrum depending on why people, the challenges that people have and finding the right solution for them. Mm, the communication one's a huge one. Like I'll definitely put myself in that middle category and I probably should be higher up. So my, my partner's a nurse, which is very helpful for me. Um, but the communication one's a huge one. Like when I went in the last time, uh, I got like, I was had to get bloods done and all this. And I was trying to get an understanding of like what was actually happening. It seemed to be this vague, mysterious thing of like, I know what I'm doing and looking for to make you better. But because I didn't know what was going on, it was much harder for me to take the incentive and, and take the initiative to actually get things done. And I fortunately had my partner there to be like, okay, here's what he's looking for. This is what this means. Uh, it's actually pretty all good. He's just doing this. She, she was able to actually break it down and explain it to me, which in hindsight, I'm kind of like, well, kind of shouldn't the doctor be doing that? Like I'm in a really fortunate position to have, have my partner be able to do that for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great example of, um, you know, there's this concept called health literacy, which, you know, we know what normal literacy is, people being able to read and write. And health literacy um, talks about our ability to understand and be able to engage with the health system. And that includes things like being able to communicate with your doctor, being able to understand the information that they give you in like a pamphlet or a take home brochure or something. And we find, you know, it's related quite a bit to, to not only normal literacy, but also socioeconomic status. So, you know, the higher up you are in, in SES, um, the more likely you are to have high health literacy and feel empowered to ask questions and engage um, with, you know, your doctors. Um, but unfortunately, people with low health literacy, you know, sometimes won't even question um, if something doesn't sound right or if they have no idea about what the doctor's talking about, if they don't understand why they're being given a drug. Um, and it can have really bad um, effects. You know, some people end up being misdiagnosed because, you know, they haven't corrected a doctor about something that they've said that's not correct. And so being able to increase people's health literacy um, is a really important step to kind of empowering them to engage more with the health system. But we also, the, the flip side of that is, you know, we also need to work with the health system itself, which is a beast to make it more, um, I guess, kind of welcoming and understanding to its patients, you know, and, and we know that doctors and nurses are really time poor, but you know, they also need to take the time to talk and explain things in plain English um, or another language, uh, you know, to yeah. their patients. Um, it's it's not enough to be able to do a great surgery. You need to be able to talk to your patient about it afterwards because if they've got a complication, if something doesn't feel right, they need to be able to tell you. Yeah, and you like the health system is an interesting one as well for me. For me personally, like I said, because having someone so close to me who's a nurse and in that world 
and myself being maybe needing a push to go see people, doctors and, and to make sure that I'm all good. There is this weird thing that I found was when I went to my last appointment, I found myself getting really nervous being there. So one of the things we had to get um, an ECG done and I just fe- I could feel my heart not doing what it normally does just because of the situation I was in. And for whatever reason, I felt really uncomfortable there. So some of the results we got back, he was like, your heart rate's a bit all over the place. And I'm sure he knows, but in my head, I was just like, yeah, I don't know why, but I just don't feel comfortable in this place right now. Uh, yeah, is there anything that is happening or can, can be done to kind of like change that whole feeling? Is it just going there more? Oh, I suppose we could set up tours of, of hospitals. Everybody could just walk through them once a month, get comfortable with them. Um, but the thing is, they're, they're designed to be efficient and practical, right? They're not designed um, with a, a human being per se um, as, as the centre. Um, and so they're these really kind of cold clinical environments that doctors and nurses are totally used to um, by the time that they're treating patients they're comfortable in that setting and I think sometimes they forget how weird and overwhelming um, it is for a patient especially one who doesn't spend much time in hospitals Um, it's they're very overwhelming I remember I've had to unfortunately you know pop into the emergency departments a couple of times over the years and just the noises and the beeping and the announcements over the loudspeakers about different codes, all of this stuff is so foreign to most of us that we do get kind of anxious about it. What I find really interesting is visiting children's hospitals. Um, I don't know about up in ACT, but in Melbourne, a lot of work's been done with the, the big children's hospitals recently to really revamp them and make them so much more welcoming. And I had to take my daughter to um, a children's hospital a couple of times last year for a, a hip issue that she had. And they're just, you know, there's mini playgrounds in them and there's artwork and cartoons playing and they're, they're really friendly um, environments and it really opened my eyes to what hospitals can look like um, and I think we could do the same thing to adult hospitals um, I think maybe people think that we don't need them as adults that we don't, we don't necessarily need you know some pretty engaging pictures on the wall to make us feel more comfortable but I actually think we probably do yeah, that would be dope. If I went to a hospital and there was a playground there for while I'm waiting, I would be very hyped. I would be all over that. This sounds like the children's hospital vibe going on in Melbourne is what definitely needs to be happening because that is my world. I can, I would be so comfortable there. That's hectic. All right, so make sure I'm, I'm not infertile. Uh, it's okay to eat the, uh, the vegetables in the grocery store. Go to my GP more, uh, convince him to put a playground in his office. Um, all right, what what else do I need to be thinking of right now? Oh, that's a great question. It depends on you know uh, what other areas of your life you're planning on um, revamping. Um, one area that we often find is influencing people a lot more than they 
uh, expect is, is what we call habits, which are fairly unconscious behaviors that we do um, without much critical thinking. Um, and they form, you know, quite a big part of our, our lives, but we don't give them much attention because we don't think about them. And so, you know, thinking about the different habits that we have and how they're driving our behavior and how they can help us have better behaviors can be a really powerful tool um, to improve our lives. And so, you know, taking stock about if you're snacking a little bit, uh, you know, too much on foods you'd rather not have, you know, does that always happen in the same context or at the same time of day? Is it just something that you do, you know, do you go grab chocolate with, because this is something I do. I go and get chocolate before I have thought about it. I don't even know how it ends up in my hand sometimes. It's just there and I'm snacking. And so understanding how these unconscious behaviours are shaping our lives is actually really important. Yeah, I found uh, the other week I was trying to do some more work from home. And for whatever reason, when I'm at home or, oh, no, I wasn't trying, it was, I was meant to have a day off. I was trying to have a day off. I struggled to have time away from like thinking of work. And I was trying to have a day off. And I found that when I wasn't working or actively kind of doing what I like to do, I was eating way more than I normally do and snacking way more. The annoying thing was I was conscious of it, but I still found myself just doing it anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And that will still happen where, um, you know, we we know we don't necessarily want to be snacking. Uh, we don't, there's no good reason that we're eating at the moment, um, but we can't quite stop ourselves. And that can be for all manner of, of reason. You know, often it's things like, you know, we're a bit tired, um, where our bodies are a bit dysregulated. So we just don't have those reserves of willpower to kind of stop us <laughs> from doing the thing that we don't want to do. Um, and there's this really interesting concept that I came across in the last couple of years called a body budget. And it's this idea that our bodies essentially kind of um, need a certain amount of input to manage all of the demands. So we need a certain amount of sleep, we need a certain amount of fuel, we need a certain amount of sugar, but kind of not too much. Um, and we need that to do the things that our body needs to do, like the thinking, processing, acting, having enough willpower to get through the day. And if our body budget gets depleted, so if we haven't had enough sleep, if we're not eating particularly well, if we haven't been physically active, and that can throw off all kinds of things as well, that means that, you know, we kind of don't have enough reserves to help us think and make good decisions and also to um, carry out the behaviours that we want to do. And I find it a really interesting concept. Yeah, body budget. I like that. I feel like that's something I, I uh, luckily this is getting recorded. So I'm not, I'm, I usually like take notes for everything that I'm listening. I'm just like, oh, I need to remember that one. But the body budget's a super interesting one because it's, I feel like it's something that we inherently know but there is something about actually taking the, the action towards getting it done or I guess, uh, for example, uh, there was a, a 
a studio thing I did a while ago where we were out of this camp and we're, you know, doing what we do, we're all musicians. The only difference there was there was a caterer. And the caterer was so amazing. She had this ability to just know when we needed snacks and when we needed food. And we found that we were all so much more creative over these few days just because we were actually being fed regularly. And I walked out going, oh, okay, if I just eat some watermelon, like, you know, halfway through my session, I'll be pretty sweet. But still, it's just one of those things where unless it was there for me, uh, I just wasn't doing it. And it, it probably just comes down to preparation. Um, but yeah, this body budget is, is I, like that, I like that term, something that I can work with. Yeah, it's good. And, and you're right. We kind of know, like these things make intuitive sense, right? We kind of get that, oh yeah, of course, that's how our body works. And we need to make sure that, you know, we're rested enough and we've got fuel, et cetera, you know, to be able to, to work properly. Um, but when we actually kind of pull it out and say, but if you don't have those things, this is the, the consequence and this is why your body can't perform the way you need it to. Um, that can kind of help us prompt some of those planning actions like okay well next time i've got you know a full day in the studio or whatever i'm gonna take in like some snacks and have it kind of planned out so that i i am refueling throughout the day with the right types of, of snacks watermelon not chocolate apparently is the way to go <laughs> yeah that's for sure the answer there was a while where i was doing that a bit uh bringing in like i had like fresh fruit on the table for like people that came in for sessions and it was really good and it was working but at some point now that i think back it just stopped it's the habit building and that's the interesting thing about habit building is that we i think we often think we've formed habits before we have we often kind of go oh i've gone for a run you know three times a week for the last month so i've got that habit i'm good i can take a day off and it's it's fine i'll just like jump back into it but habits can be depending on the behavior can be really hard to form and sometimes you know uh, there's this weird stat that gets thrown around that a habit takes three weeks or 30 days or something to form that's kind of nonsense a habit can take you know 40 days um if it's you know maybe easy like if you just want to drink a glass of water in the morning that's relatively easy behavior and won't take too long but it will still take you know those 30 to 40 days if you want to go running unless you are a running enthusiast who already has the most positive attitudes towards loving and loves the the physical experience of doing it that is not an easy habit to form and you may have to do it for months months until it becomes something that's vaguely automatic and some things never habituate it doesn't matter how long you do them for um, you know if you wanted to do push-ups in the morning but you hate push-ups like good luck you're just it is unlikely that that is ever going to be an automatic thing that you do as soon as you wake up so we need to be you know a bit smart in what we want to turn into a habit so is that more just about finding well i guess it's just finding what you enjoy doing because you're totally right about the the exercise thing and i'm going to throw my partner under the bus she hates push-ups 
Uh, I love push-ups personally. I am a big fan of doing push-ups in the morning. And I've been trying to get her on that boat, like in that boat with me for a while now. But just off the bat, just like as soon as you even start the word, she's not about it. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, it's just habit building. You've also called me out on like, I got told it was 21 days to build a habit. So I'm like, we just do push-ups every morning, 21 days in a row, and you'll be sweet. Uh, that didn't happen. And I blamed myself. But now I know I can take the burden off my own shoulders. Yeah, it's not your fault. Um, that is your your bodies and your brains working against you You there. That habit was probably never going to form in, in three weeks. Um, you know, and, and one, I'm with your partner here. I am not a fan of push-ups. And so for me, you know, it's never going to be a habit that I do easily because it's not something I enjoy. It's not something that I get a, a reward from, you know, even when I've done, you know, I enjoy running and I get a bit of a high from running. I do not get that from push-ups. So I don't even get that kind of rush of adrenaline that I'm like, yeah, I've done something great and now I feel healthy and good. Um, it's just like, well, that was painful and kind of sucked. So I don't have a good attitude towards push-ups, um, which just means that motivation to kind of keep trying them isn't there. And so when we're thinking about, you know, something like physical activity, it's really important to choose activities that you at least enjoy because when you do experience, um, I guess, bumps in the road um, and, you know, maybe you're sick for a week or two and can't work out and have to then kind of get back into it and, and build up your, um, I've forgotten the word, athleticism again. Um, you know, it has to be something that you at least have a bit of a positive attitude towards. It's something that you enjoy. Maybe, you know, if you're not really into the physical side of working out, you at least do a team sport and get the social part of it. So you've got to kind of work with yourself in trying to be a bit healthier. Um, if you if you try and force yourself to do stuff that you hate all the time, it's it's going to be an uphill battle. Yeah, is there so in saying that though, because I, I am definitely someone who who convinces myself that a lot of things are mind over matter. Is there ways that has been, I guess, more proven or research done to show how to actually change your attitude towards things? Because that's something that I've definitely become aware of is how I think about whatever I'm about to do that I don't want to do. If I start kind of like tricking myself or convincing myself that I enjoy it, I can most of the time get myself through it? Um, look, it can work with some things, but it really depends on the person and the behaviour and how much you have to change the attitude. Um, so if it's something that you've just had, maybe had a bad experience with in the past once um, and, you know, you just have to kind of find a way to overcome that past bad experience um, you know, maybe you sprained your ankle while you were jogging once and that made you a bit nervous about, you know, running out in on the street or in parks or something. Um, you know, and that's, you know, that wouldn't be too difficult to kind of overcome. But if it's something that, you know, like I, you just really don't enjoy the sensation of running, 
you know, there are women who have bigger busts that it's just a very uncomfortable experience for them. Um, and so that's not really something that a, a more positive attitude is going to, to solve. And so there's kind of, yeah, this is why I say, you know, you've got to work with yourself um, in understanding how big the challenge is to the behaviour. If it's something that, and, and sometimes our, our negative attitudes are actually just uh, almost a lack of information. We actually just don't know enough about the activity or the behaviour. And I know this this happens to me all the time is I, I don't like uncertainty and unfamiliar things. And so if I have to go somewhere or do something that I know nothing about, I'm kind of like, oh, okay, how am I going to handle this? You know, like I get really pumped up on adrenaline. And I'm like, okay, I need like five plans about like how this could play out and how I'm going to manage everything that's going to go wrong. And so, you know, it, sometimes we actually just need to to kind of do something to be familiar with it and kind of realise, oh, it's it's not that bad. Um, you know, maybe you've never been running or jogging before out in the park and you kind of think it's going to be super stressful and people will be looking at you and you'll be really sweaty. And then you kind of go and you're like, oh, actually, that was kind of nice. There was a breeze and, you know, I got an adrenaline rush and that was, it was pleasant. So sometimes it's just also overcoming the unfamiliar. Mm. When it comes to, I guess, uh, from your point of view, changing people's behaviours and not apart from like changing our own behaviours and our own attitudes towards things, when you're trying to change the behaviour of, say, uh, a group of people or like we're talking about the different uh, types of people who do and don't go to their doctors is there a, is there some sort of like formula that you found actually works to getting people to change their attitudes and the way they look at these things so there's some i guess high level techniques that you can use for large groups and we often use these kind of at a community or you know population level because what they do is um, have small effects for big groups of people. And this is stuff um, like making the behaviour you want people to do as easy as possible, removing any barriers, because, you know, we, we do things that are easy. <laughs> we like um, easy behaviours, so the easier that something is for us to do, the more likely we are to do it. Um, it's also things like making things timely. So making the behaviour something um, that's easy to engage in at the right time, um, reminding people when they need to do something. And that might be, you know, encouraging people to set reminders on their phone if they do want to go out for a jog every day, just as that prompt that, oh yeah, up you go. Um, also making things attractive and by this we kind of are, are largely talking about social norms um, and emphasizing how many other people are doing the behavior we're very social creatures and we're very even though most of us wouldn't admit it we're influenced a lot by what other people are doing especially other people who are important to us so our kind of close family and friends have a pretty big influence on what we think is a good or bad idea to do and so emphasizing 
um, yeah, how many people are doing the behavior you want people to do or emphasizing how many people approve of the behavior can also really um, increase people's motivation and intention to do it. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, they're things that work um, at a, a high broad level and they, they make small increases in the behaviours that people are doing. If we want to have a bigger impact on changing people's behaviour, we recommend a more targeted approach where we really look at, okay, this is the group of people that we want to target and maybe it's those people that never go to the doctor, they've got really bad attitudes about the healthcare system, they don't like it, they've had bad experiences. And we really have to delve into the, the drivers and barriers of their behaviour. You know, why is it that they're not going? Um, are they doing other things instead that we need to understand, kind of compensatory behaviours that are um, also reducing the need for them to do the, the thing we want them to do? And it's through that deep understanding and, and talking to people and understanding their position that you can kind of design solutions or programs or interventions um, that are more likely to work. So there's things that you can do on part of a high level, um, but if you want bigger impact, you actually have to go small and targeted. Yeah, the the social one obviously makes a lot of sense. Is it? I'm I'm also kind of now using this as a chance to play some experiments on some friends. Uh, and see if I can get them to do things that they may not otherwise enjoy doing. Uh, I have a particular friend who does not enjoy going for long walks and I'm for some reason very adamant on getting him into going for like these hikes. And I'm wondering if it is also to do with our social group. Um, you've just like triggered something. Half the group is with him in that they don't enjoy going for the hikes as well. So if I was to bring him into my groups that enjoy the hikes more and he was to hang around us more, would that theoretically and scientifically be a good way to kind of be like, oh, it's a cool thing to do. Here's this new social group that has embraced you, that love hiking. Would that work? Uh, it could. It could, if you're, you know, uh, changing his his social network a little bit to emphasize uh, the the value and the positives of hiking, uh, that could influence um, the likelihood that he might have more positive attitudes towards hiking. Depends a little bit on why he is so um, against hiking in the first place. Um, and also why you you want him to hike so much if you have other hiking friends. Uh, I don't know. I like I like people to be, I guess, yeah, maybe you're right, actually. You're totally right. I think I just, when I enjoy doing something so much, I want everyone to be like, you got to see how awesome this is. And when they're not about it, it makes me want to get them to do it even more. And that's a great example of how social we are right we want the people around us the people that we like and uh, love to endorse the things that we do because what they think and what they do is really important to us and influences us so your desire for him to like hiking 
is a great demonstration of why social, we call them social norms, um, are a great influence on our behavior. All right. Do you find that through like all this knowledge that you have and understanding how our brains work and how people kind of like are the way they are? Because now with these conversations, now I feel like I'm starting to be a bit of like a mad scientist and just like manipulating all my friends now. Not that you do that, but do you find that like if you're like, oh, if I try this tactic with this person in my life, there's more likely of a chance that they're going to like agree with me or, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Um, unfortunately, yes. I mean, it's really hard when you spend, you know, when your career is thinking about how people behave and how to encourage them to behave differently. And I will say at this point, you know, behaviour works um, only does work for social good. So, you know, we're, we always say we don't sell Coke to kids. You know, we're very interested in only working on projects that, um, you know, benefit people. But, you know, when that's how you spend your time, it's hard when then you go home and you're like, oh, my husband has left dishes on the table again, not in, he hasn't put them in the dishwasher. Hard to think, well, how could I just nudge that behaviour that I would like him to do? And so it does, it does seep into your everyday life a little bit. Okay. All right. I was going to say the dishes one is a weird one that I'm, I'm the same. I enjoy the idea that all your dishes are done. Everything is clear and you wake up the next day with a fresh slate of nothing. Uh, the people I, around me person had just not feel the same way. So I was curious if you've actually found a way to, to, to nudge that behavior a little bit in your favor. I, I wish I had, um, the so i I've, I've tried a few things over the years um one thing that worked was essentially uh, almost a bartering system it's like understanding something that you know my partner would like um and then okay well can we negotiate if you put your dishes away then i will use you know the nice plates that you like using rather than kind of the chipped plates that we have, which I, I don't particularly care which ones we use. Um, and so that, that did work for a little while is kind of going, okay, well, what's something that they would like to change and can I use that to leverage what I want? Um, I have to say in the, so things are much better now. But the thing that has changed is that we had a child. Um, and so that completely disrupted the domestic sphere that we lived in um, and all the routines and habits that we had built as a couple kind of got thrown up in the air and had to land differently. Um, and that somehow meant that he's now much better at some of these behaviors and there is actually some science behind this not that having a child will fix um your your domestic um worries because we actually know that's not true um but moments of disruption 
can be a good time to change people's habits and behaviors. So if you're moving house um, or if you're renovating or something, that can be a really good time to change domestic habits because your normal routines um, have to change a little bit. You know, you don't use the same pathway from the living room to the kitchen. So you kind of have to, it prompts um, more um, conscious thinking as opposed to automatic behaviours. And so it, it uh, invites an opportunity to reprogram some of those things. Right. That's that's super interesting because now that I think back, we we just moved ourselves recently. And the dishes thing as a great example wasn't something I was you know particularly as anal about as I, you know, I'm very weird about it now and I wasn't that way beforehand. And for whatever reason, once we've been moved into this new place, it's brand new, everything is clean and sparkling. So there was this part of me that's like, it needs to stay that way. And so since we'd moved, since that disruption. I have found that I've actually, yeah, myself changed. That is super interesting. Yeah, it's it's fascinating that there are there are times in our lives when we're more receptive um, to change, um, and times that we're kind of fairly embedded in our behaviours. And so, depending on what the behaviour is, it's about finding the right time to um, to change things. And so, yeah, look for those moments of of disruption or create moments of disruption. I full feel like a mad scientist right now. Just, I feel like I'm going to come out of these experiences just absolutely ruining my friends' lives because I'm just going to come out of it going, here's how I can change all these things about all of us. And I honestly don't know how you go about your day and just don't think like, I'm going to change that about you because I don't like it. Well, unfortunately, I think what you will find is that it's it's pretty hard to change behaviours a lot of the time. Um, whilst we have lots of tools that, that can help, um, you know, it's not super easy to change somebody's behaviour, especially if they're not motivated to change. So we'll see how you go. Yeah, that's great. That's fair enough. I have a super random one, which I don't know if you can answer for me or not. Uh, but I was at a, a dinner thing the other night and everyone else was talking about this thing that they do as humans, they reckon. Uh, we have this ability to do things that are super like, so a good example was one of them was talking about, it's like, do you know when you're just driving and you just think like, I could just like ram this person, but I won't do it. And then someone else is like, yeah, I kind of have that room in the office. And I'm like, I could just like punch this person out, and but I won't do it. And I was sitting there like, I've never had that inkling in my life, but everyone else I've seemed to talk to, there's this something about like, as humans, the thought of doing something like we can do it, but our willpower and us being moral beings is what makes us not do it. Is there anything that you know about this that can help me out? Um, I have to say it's not an area I have researched uh, or know a huge amount about. The only thing I I know that is might be tangentially related is, you know, our brains are, you know, work a lot on prediction. We they're not 
they don't wait for the world to happen and then react to it. Um, we're constantly trying to guess what's going to happen next and what we might need to do in response to that. So I don't know if maybe this is some kind of weird prediction error almost that kind of, you know, the world's just thinking about, oh, what's everything that's going to happen? Oh, maybe a moment of aggression will happen and I'll have to get violent. I don't know. This is, this is pure speculation. It's not an area I know much yeah. about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It was super random. And I felt like the weirdo because I was the only one in that group that was like, that seems really kind of messed up. Uh, but I was wondering if it's just like a, one of those things, like as our, as we've developed from, I don't know how we've developed, is it just a thing that we have this innate, uh, I guess, uh, inkling or like desire to do these things, but because of uh, how we've developed, we're able to kind of like bypass that more animal brain or that, um, yeah, the side of us that kind of just goes, eh, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Um, you know, our, our conscious mind, our, our moral being is able to step in and be like, that's actually not what we should be doing here. Yeah, I, I don't really know. Um, you know, well, we do kind of explore hypothetical situations in our, our brains. We're kind of like, oh, how is this going to play out? What might happen? Um, you know, and as I was saying before, you know, when something's really unfamiliar and we don't know how things are going to do, sometimes we kind of catastrophize and, and try and think about like, oh, okay, well, what's everything that can go wrong in, in this scenario and how might I deal with it? Um, but how that links to what, yeah, what you were saying, I don't really know. I'll probably go away and, and investigate that a little bit after this, this conversation because now you've got me thinking about it. Well, don't, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, uh, don't take too much energy of your time. Don't take too much of your time and energy to, to get the answer back to me on that one. Uh, on, a, on a more personal matter, I'm curious to know how you actually got into the field that you're in. It seems like I think I was lumping psychology in together very broadly until these last few weeks, um, doing some reading on you and, and some other people that we've talked to and just generally realizing that psychology is this huge thing, huge umbrella. Um, how did you actually get into what you're doing? Yeah, so psychology is a massive field with a really long history as well. Um, I've just always been really interested in people. Um, and why we think the way we do, why we behave the way we do, why we're all a little bit different, but a lot the same as well. Um, and so, you know, I started reading about psychology in high school and always found it really interesting, studied it at, at university. Um, and, you know, it's kind of coupled with, I, you know, I'm particularly interested in in health and how we look after ourselves um, and how we look after each other as a community as well. And so I went on to do a, a PhD in public health slash psychology, kind of public health from a psychological perspective a little bit. Um, and while I was doing that work, it was super interesting and I uncovered all these things that are related to, to our mental health and our well-being and, and how we think about our lives. And then I realized that there was kind of this gap between what I was doing um, 
and what needed to be done. What I was doing was really investigating the problem um, and trying to understand why we are the way we are. And I'm like, okay, but what do we do about it? Um, which led me into behavior change because behavior change is all about, okay, well, this is, the, this is the problem that we're facing. How can we improve it? How can we make sure that people are looking after themselves? How can we encourage people to, you know, practice mindfulness, which we know can be really effective for mental health? Um, how can we structure our communities, our environments to make them better for mental health? Um, and so I got really drawn into this area of behaviour change to understand, okay, well, now that we know what the problem is, let's find out ways to fix it. And so that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, six, six or so years. Wow. That's amazing. With the, with the mindfulness one specifically, have you gotten to do research through your work or just personally about how to actually get people to, to be more mindful? And I guess, you know, the conversation of mental health has definitely jumped up way more than ever had before. Um, people are way more open about it now. But have you, yeah, have you done any research or worked anything that can kind of shed any light on that or how to actually help other people help themselves? Um, so mental health is a real passion of, of mine. It's what I did my PhD in and it's something that I, I'm really interested in, in promoting because it affects so many parts of our lives and we, there's a really strong interaction between our mental health and our physical health and our general well-being. Um, we haven't done a lot of work in like mindfulness, for example. Um, we run sessions within behaviour work sometimes to kind of encourage it um, and there's some um, things happening kind of throughout the university to encourage it, but I'm, I'm actively looking for opportunities around other projects that we can kind of do in the community because it's something that I'm really interested in. Yeah, right. Do you mind, do you mind sharing anything that you, like are you, I've heard a lot about, um, yeah, well, I, I personally got into like meditation through these conversations and stuff that I hadn't really gotten into or knew much about and had a few friends who were really into, you know, yoga and, and just ways of stealing the mind. And I guess through being around certain people for a long time, I started just trying out these things for myself. And I found something as simple as focusing on your breath can just help slow down a situation so much. Is there anything that like you, like what, out of curiosity, what, what do you personally do or try to encourage people around you to do when you're seeing that they're maybe getting overwhelmed or things are getting a bit hectic? Yeah, well, you know, like you just mentioned, that um, that technique of just focusing on your, your breath and trying to calm down your breathing, I find is one of the most useful. Um, I do try and practice um, a more structured mindfulness occasionally, but I have to admit, despite my interest and passion on it, I'm not always excellent at executing it for myself. Um, I need to do my own behavioral analysis there. Um, but the, the interesting thing that I find with the, the breathing is that, you know, of all the ways our bodies operate, you know, we have heart rates and um, hormones um, and, and all these other things that um, kind of regulate our bodies. Our breathing is the only one that we can consciously control. Um, and it's, you know, it interacts with all of the other things. And so by focusing on our breathing, it can actually change the way that our body is physically reacting to 
um, you know, a scenario. And so, you know, if you are finding that people are um, stressed or, or anxious, um, focusing on your breathing and calming that down can change the whole situation. So it's a really powerful technique. Love it. Dr. Brianna, thank you so much for your time. Thanks. This was a really interesting chat. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. We'll catch you. Bye.